0: All right, if you would make your way to 2 Chronicles 30, I'm actually going to only read 12 through 23 to get us started. Uh, We'll go through the whole of the chapter, uh, but that is going to be, or or 13 through 22 rather, Uh, that's going to be what we focus on. Adam, as far as it being consistent with what I'm reading, it's not that far off and you guys can make the jump if you need to. Uh, And so if you would give your attention to the reading of God's word and as you give your attention, here's the key truth that I want us to walk away with. Lord's Day Sabbath worship is a blessed necessity that is critical to our relationship with God, each other, and the world. Let me say that again. Lord's Day Sabbath worship is a blessed necessity that is critical to our relationship with God, each other, and the world. If you would hear God's word, this is Second Chronicles 30, 13-22. And many people came together in Jerusalem to keep the feast of unleavened bread in the second month, a very great assembly. They set to work and removed the altars that were in Jerusalem, and all the altars for burning incense they took away and threw into the brook Kidron. And they slaughtered the Passover lamb on the fourteenth day of the second month. And the priests and the Levites were ashamed. So that they consecrated themselves and brought burnt offerings into the house of the Lord. They took their accustomed posts according to the law of Moses, the man of God. The priests threw the blood that they received from the hand of the Levites. For there were many in the assembly who had not consecrated themselves. Therefore the Levites had to slaughter the Passover lamb for everyone who was not clean to consecrate it to the Lord. For a majority of the people... Many of them from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun had not cleansed themselves, yet they ate the Passover otherwise than as prescribed. For Hezekiah had prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord pardon everyone who sets his heart to seek God, the Lord, the God of his fathers, even though not according to the sanctuary's rules of cleanliness, And the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. And the people of Israel who were present at Jerusalem kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with great gladness. And the Levites and the priests praised the Lord day by day, singing with all their might to the Lord. And Hezekiah spoke encouragingly to all the Levites who showed good skill in the service of the Lord. So they ate the food of the festival for seven days, sacrificing peace offerings and giving thanks to the Lord, the God of their fathers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, thanks be to God. So, uh, as we step into this uh, sermon series on worship, I, I want to encourage you again. There's a few of the, the uh, devotionals, the physical devotionals, out on the table left. So, grab one of those if you haven't. It's also downloadable for those of you who are against harming trees any further than we have. Uh, Someone took a Nazarite vow recently against paper. Uh, And so uh, you can do it either way. And I encourage you, make sure you read that introduction. You you can do it in less than 10 minutes, uh, unless you're a really slow reader. There's also some things about our worship that you may have seen before, but may have forgotten. This is something that it is good for us periodically to take stock of because we can uh, forget. We can think, hey, I show up and that's enough. I don't need to think about this worship thing. And and many of us would rather hear about do's and don'ts than head and heart. Well, this series is about head and heart. Not so much the do's and don'ts. We'll, We'll talk some about those within the context of the regulative principle. But too often we talk about the regulative principle, which, by the way, is a reformed idea that says... You do what God clearly prescribes in worship, and you don't do what he clearly says you shouldn't do in worship. And that leaves uh, some space between that we've been fighting over for hundreds of years. Now, what's interesting about the regulative principle is I have yet to, and maybe it's just I'm running the wrong circles or I'm limited, but I've yet to hear it discussed in terms of the heart that ought be behind it before you worry about which songs to sing or when. how right so uh, I'm convicted by that and much like the Levites I come before you ashamed in some measure because at times I think I have even been more about the nuts and bolts I love the fact that it was kind of chaotic in fact I think that's God's uh, blessing to us to before we could even worship we don't know when to stand up or sit down We, we don't know what the words are we're all over the place we're a mess Know this, I have prayed for you this morning. And the Lord Jesus wants you to be healed and clean and to enjoy the presence of the Lord no matter the condition in which you've come in. No matter whether or not you tried to sing that horribly syncopated divine invitation song because you didn't know where the notes were. And God forbid you be singing when no one else is. No greater crime can be committed, apparently, we think. Right? So... Take heart. Jesus. Because is it possible to worship perfectly? I'd have to go through and make sure every single one of you was in the right place. We don't and think of how long our service. No wonder they had to worship seven days. Trying to make sure everybody had it together, but that ain't why they worship seven days. So This series, again, I want to say, is about God inviting us into something that he knew we couldn't get right from the start, something that he knew we would never get right in an earthly circumstance, but we're practicing for when heaven would give us the grand freedom to worship in spirit and truth. Amen? All right. That was weak. When Randy was here, I heard it was stronger, so we're going to work on that. All right, so... Here's my question for you. What makes something a blessed necessity versus an optional luxury for you? Those words are very important. There are things that are necessities that aren't blessed, i.e., you turn a certain age, you must go see and have an upper and a lower GI done, which I have not heard anyone say is super exciting, is a great way to lose some weight quickly, and, and is enjoyable. It is a necessity, right? But it ain't blessed. And some things are optional but not luxurious in being optional, right? And so, so I understand I have chosen these words and it limits the frame pretty significantly as to what's a blessed uh, necessity and what is an optional luxury. I'm going to posit to you that too many of us think that worship, and, and here's the hard part, I'm probably preaching to the majority of the choir because you're here, but too many of us treat worship as optional luxury, Because we have a radically individualized view of us and Jesus, and we don't need anybody else, and that is patently unbiblical. Hear me rightly. There is no category that you can find in Scripture for just Jesus and you. You were not saved to be an individual apart from the body of Christ. We're going to hear more about this when we get to Romans 12. In fact, Paul's really going to drill down on the necessity of being a part of the body. So for those of you who only show up occasionally, uh, for those of you who who think this is just about you and Jesus, and you don't think about how you come into worship or who else you may uh, be here to to bless or to pray with or to encourage with a word, I, I pray that that would change for you. It's changed for me. It's it's changed how I view worship significantly. And so it's very important that we recognize so much of our problem is disentangling that first. So for many of you, you're going to need to spend some time in prayer and humility and confession and realize that you've had a radically individualized view, which is a very American thing, by the way. Right? We come by it, honest. I'm not mad at you for having it. It's just you can't keep it. And so, uh, something is often a blessed necessity when we derive something from it. Now, here's the other part. How many times have you left worship and you just didn't get a whole lot out of it? Right? I don't often have that experience, truthfully, because I have to prepare for it, the sermon and that kind of stuff. So, I I get a ton out of it each week, personally. But I also, my wife can tell you, have left some services thinking, I need to change my business card to say motivational speaker for the dead. Because that's what it felt like. But what was interesting is I discovered some of that had to do with the lighting. Some of that had to do with the fact there's no natural light coming in. When we were at RTS, it's like y'all had undergone a revival and suddenly we're hungry for the word of the Lord. Well, that wasn't true either, necessarily, uh, but but... but what was happening was natural light was affecting how I view the circumstance. So we recognize that the environment plays a part. Not having air condition. I, I get it. I watch some of y'all. Uh, you know, it just, it's like watching the battery drain on the iPhone. Uh, you're, you're sinking. And for some reason, we have the doors closed. Can somebody open those doors? I know it's fall, but it ain't falling here. Um, so that would be great. <laughs> um, uh, and so, so... I get it, like we're affected by lots of things, but this is where we have to remember our theology that God's promises hold true regardless of the performance, right? So if everything is based on, if worship only works if you are in the right headspace and I'm in the right headspace, what hope do we have of any worship service ever meaning anything? This is one of the great gifts that the Lord gives to us. Every one of them means something. You just may not know when or where or why or how just yet. And praise God for that. So let us grow in our understanding that worship is a blessed necessity, not something you can take or leave. And being a a known part of a local church body is a critical, critical thing. I get it. we got churches all over the place. You can, you can kind of visit around. You can kind of figure out what flavor fits you best. But at some point, you've got to become part of that body. And you've got to use the gifts that the Lord has given you because he said he gave them to you. Not because you uh, recognize them or like them even. But you will grow and it will bless you and benefit you as a result. Trust me, I, I didn't always do this for a living. I used to be just like you. I used to attend church and had... The benefit slash misfortune of the first couple of churches I attended, and this is arrogant, by the way, uh, but, but the, the preaching just wasn't good, and oftentimes it was just rabbit trails all over the place, and then there was another church we went to where the sermon would get re- repeated in full on a three-month cycle, and because I have a, the memory that I do, I was like, oh, I could anticipate, it was like I was prophetically predicting what he was saying, no, I just remembered, and he was repeating himself, and so, but we grew so significantly during that time because I realized I can't I can't hang on, I can't let it be decided by the man. It must be decided by the Lord. And so that's not to say to let me off the hook and say, now I'm gonna repeat myself a thousand times and chase rabbit trails. No, I've got a responsibility as well. And so as we step into this text, this is the point. This is the point of the entire series and our hope for us. So The circumstance is that uh, the north and south kingdom have been divided. The northern kingdom is called Israel. She has fallen. She's fallen to Assyria. Samaria has been taken. And they are uh, under oppressive exile in the north. However, the Assyrians are so concerned with their enemies around them to the further north that they're not so concerned with people coming from the south, which is known as Judah. In addition... Judah had previously helped vanquish Israel. So they were enemies, which makes this text really important. And so the Passover in the North Kingdom has not been celebrated in over 200 years. In fact, uh, they had false worship at at Dan and Beersheba, which are going to be mentioned here. They had idols set up. They had their own priesthood. And so Hezekiah recognizes there is the need for reunification. There's the need for unity. And then more importantly, that unification needs to be around the redemptive work of God, nothing else. And so he's going to call for them to celebrate the Passover. And here is how that decision gets made. Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah uh, and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, Ephraim and Manasseh were kind of landless people that were out beyond the pale of even both the north and the south kingdom. And so he goes on, that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. For the king and his princes and all the assembly in Jerusalem had taken counsel to keep the Passover in the second month. Now, this is really important. The second month is not when you keep the Passover. You keep the Passover in the first month. However, there's a provision that we could find in Numbers chapter 9, verses 10 and 11, that that shows God's graciousness. While there is banks of the river, there is this, this notion that things need to be done decently and in order. The Lord is actually flexible toward those whom he loves. So in Numbers 9, you you would find that if you had touched a dead body, you would have to wait to to participate in the Passover. Or if you were traveling and far away, you would have to wait to participate in the Passover. And so there was a provision where you could participate. And so they are choosing, look, we ain't done this in a long time. We need to, we want to do it well. We want to give everybody plenty of time to get here. So we're going to do it not when it's normally done. And we'll see if the Lord is okay with that. So this would, to give us a modern equivalency. So when they lifted all of the restrictions on us meeting together, let's just say it was a Thursday night on which they'd lifted all those restrictions. If we had said, look, we haven't been able to all be together in a long time. Let's, let's rent the community center and do a worship service. Well, wait a minute now. It's not on Sunday. Can't call it that. We'll just call it a gathering. Well What? As if God is equivocating over words. So we could have done something similar, and you may be saying, well, why didn't you? Because I'm not Hezekiah. I didn't think about it, and I'm sorry. But I was super excited when we did get back together. And so they are doing it on the wrong month, and like I said, we'll see if God is okay with that. And it goes on. For they could not keep it at the time, because the priests had not consecrated themselves in sufficient number, and nor had the people assembled in Jerusalem. And the plan seemed right to the king and all the assembly. So they decreed to make a proclamation throughout all Israel from Beersheba to Dan that the people should come and keep the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel at Jerusalem, for they had not kept it as often as prescribed. So couriers went throughout all Israel and Judah with letters from the king and his princes as the king had commanded, saying, listen at what he says. Now, this is both to the north and the south kingdom. So he's not suggesting that Judah is somehow more holy than Israel, which is an exile. This is to everyone. O people of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Now here, he's using Israel in the unified sense, not just in the northern kingdom sense. Just so we're clear. And he goes on, and uh, that they may turn again to... To the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the king of Assyria. Uh, And so do not be like your fathers and your brothers who were faithless to the Lord, God of their fathers, so that he made them a desolation as you see. Do not now be stiff necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord and come to his sanctuary, which he has consecrated forever, and serve. The Lord your God, that his fierce anger may turn away from you. So what does this tell us about the way in which we should come before the presence of the Lord our God? It tells us that we need to recognize you're coming before someone, a God, who is holy. Who has redeemed you and loves you. And wants to restore you. Don't miss that. This isn't just about pure, like, get this right or I'm going to kill you because we we saw already in the text. That's not true. It's not what he's concerned about. What he's most concerned about is the heart with which someone comes. And notice what it says, that in this service, you will serve. You are not an audience. I know it feels like that right now with me standing on a stage. That's one of the great dangers of the way in which some of, uh, some of how we do what we do, right? It can get conflated into you thinking you are passively receiving. No, you are here to serve. Yes, you are to receive, but you're to receive actively. How then should I live based on the word of God? And also to serve one another, right? Which I, I've seen this church grow in and, and do in increasing measure, uh, much to my humility and joy. And so uh, with this in mind, we recognize that it is very important that we do have some notion of how we come, not legalistically, but you're coming before the Lord. And and remember, the Passover was a celebration of him delivering them from slavery and delivering them ultimately to worship with him. It is very much a celebration that is is similar in some measure to, to baptism and also the Lord's table. And so they are celebrating that God loves them and delivers them. Why would we not want to come with humility and ready to serve a God who is like that? And he goes on to say, For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. So their worship affected the coming generations. Their worship affected those who didn't show up. Why would he need to refer to their brothers and sisters if they were going to be there? Notice that this was also good for the life of their world in the coming generations. And he goes on. Uh, He will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. So one of the great things, now you may be thinking, Cameron, I got you. I can't. The email's almost getting ready to be sent. They did this once a year. What's it got to do with us doing this week in and week out? Do you mean to tell me that what Christ has done for us in the eternal sense is not greater than what was done for them in the temporal sense? Would you argue with me and suggest that that eternal reality is not worthy of a weekly practice, which we are commanded to do? And that that attitude is, is, is just yearly? Instead of weekly, for all that the Lord does, you are filled with the Spirit. They were not. The Spirit was present and at work, but they were not filled with the Spirit. They didn't have the fullness of revelation like we do. We get to choose from 2 Chronicles 30. We get to choose from Hebrews. What a great banquet that we have before us. How is it that we would limit that? great banquet and, not to mention, this is practice for what you're going to do for eternity. You do know that of all the things that we uh, suggest that the church does, and you'll see this in the quote later on, worship is the one thing that will remain eternal. All the other stuff, Sunday school, youth group, service in the community, all that stuff's going away. That's temporary. Worship is the thing that will remain. So why would we want, want to not... Be ready for that eternal reality. And, 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 be, and you may be thinking, do I have to listen to you for an eternity? No, that's the good news. Preaching also won't be part of it. It'll just be singing and celebration and feasting and gladness and goodness. And that's something you want to be prepared for. You can't just say, well, it'll, I'll catch up in the curve. No, that's arrogant to think you can catch up anywhere. And he goes on, so the couriers went from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh and as far as Zebulun, but they laughed at them and scorned and mocked them. Do you understand what's happening here? So here they are saying, hey, come celebrate the Passover to their brothers and sisters who are in exile, and they are being scorned and mocked. Does this sound similar to anything you've heard of in the New Testament? Think about when God sends the, the, the people to, uh, from the vineyard to, to tell of the goodness of the Lord. And what do they do with them? They kill them. In fact, they end up killing the son. Think about the, the story of Jesus when he's talking about the great banquet in Luke 14. Great story for its subversion. So he's just healed somebody on the Sabbath for which all the Jews are upset, but they can't figure out how to catch it. So then he tells them, he notices that he tells them a story about the taking of the best seats. And then one of them is reclining. I love the way it describes it because you can just imagine. In his hubris, in his arrogance, he's reclined back with his phylacteries and such. And he says uh, to him, he says, yes, but they are invited to the banquet. And I'm imagining that last part. That's not in Scripture. And so, and so Jesus says, funny you say that. Let me tell you another story about that banquet that you think you are invited to. Uh, They go out and they invite, and instead they are basically ridiculed and mocked and told, hey, we got better things to do than come and be with the Lord and worship the Lord. And so he then says to them, now, all right, since they don't want to come, go out into the highways and byways and you get the least of these. The blind, the lame, the beggar, who, by the way, are not going to know how to sing our songs the right way who aren't going to know when to stand, when to sit, when to say amen, and how to behave real good, probably. It would be a very interesting and raucous worship service, might you imagine. And so he says, go get them. And he turns to him and he says, essentially, your invitation has been revoked. He says it this way, he says, all who are invited will not be there. And so there, there's a sense in which we cannot take this for granted. There's a sense in which we, we, we shouldn't mock the Lord by the way in which we think about and attend to and participate in worship, right? There are ways in which we, we arrogantly mock because we think we've heard all this before, as if hearing it one more time might not be of some benefit to you. And who are you to decide what it is you need to hear? That's a pretty closed system and locked box, is it not? Because I've yet to see a single human being press themselves enough to grow in sanctification. I've yet to meet that person and myself is included in that. I will take the path of least resistance every single time. I will never put myself in the vice enough to grow like Jesus. I'm not about suffering. I'm not interested in it. Just like you, I do everything I can to avoid it. And so, here they are being mocked. However, the hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded. Oh, I'm sorry, let me back up. Uh, however, some men of Asher, of Manasseh, and of Zebulun humbled themselves. Do you hear that? Humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. The hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. So it's very clear it is not by their effort that this is occurring. The Lord is the one who is commanding. The Lord is the one who is bringing it to pass. Our calling is to submit to the Lord and say, Lord, what would you have for us? What would you have for us in, in this really silly Babel-esque type service that we seek to offer to you as if God hasn't heard songs sung better. As if God hasn't heard sermons that, that better uh, reflected his word, right? And yet he chooses to be with us and take joy in us just as I did yesterday with my granddaughters, plural now, uh, and, and the fact that my, my little granddaughter, she kept screeching she just kept screaming, but it was joyful, even though it was, I was losing my hearing in my left ear. And just, over and over, she just wanted to hide me in the pillows and screech with great joy. Did I tell her to stop? Nope. Her dad did, because it was bothering him, but not her granddad. And so... In the same way, it's, it's, it's not the perfection, it's not the skill that we bring to worship that brings God joy. It's the heart. Do we get who He is and who we are? And it goes on. And many people came together in Jerusalem to keep the Feast of unleavened bread, of which the Passover was going to be part. In the second month, a very great assembly. Now that, that's hear that? A very great assembly. They set to work and removed the altars that were in Jerusalem and all the altars for burning incense. They took away and threw it into the brook Kidron. So they did the hard work of removing the idolatrous stuff. So I'm not suggesting you go out and burn down a Starbucks before you come to worship, okay? Don't do that. But instead, look now because of who indwells you because you are now the temple of the Lord because of the Holy Spirit who indwells you rip out the idols from your heart, mortify, take time at some point before you come to worship, and even if you didn't, that's why we have the confession of sin to try to help you out. And that's us, just like Hezekiah, praying for you and giving us the opportunity to remove some of that idolatrous material, knowing we'll never remove it all for each worship service, but it should be something of how we prepare, that we recognize there are some things we need to remove. They did this uh, in in their community. Now, what's interesting is they removed all this stuff from Jerusalem. How is it that there were idol worship stuff in Jerusalem where the temple was located? How did that happen? Especially when at this time they were still a theocracy. Those of you who are hoping for a theocracy to resume, it won't solve all the problems. Only God can. And he goes on, and they slaughtered the Passover lamb on the 14th day of the second month. And the priests and the Levites were ashamed so that they consecrated themselves and brought burnt offerings into the house of the Lord. Now, why were they ashamed? Well, they had not made sure that the Passover was being kept on a regular basis. They had allowed, the Levites had allowed these altars and things of this nature to be set up in the community. They were not doing their job to help keep the people oriented before God. And yet, the Lord didn't kill them all. They had the opportunity to consecrate themselves and continue in their service, for which Hezekiah later will commend them. They took their accustomed posts according to the law of Moses, the man of God, the priests through the blood that they received from the hand of the Levites. For there were many in the assembly who had not consecrated themselves. So they essentially were throwing blood on people as they were coming in to consecrate them, to make them clean When it was their responsibility, they should have done it themselves. That would have been the regulative principle for worship then. Now think about that for a second. How many of you would like it if if, uh, Mark and Robbie were standing at the door this morning just for effect started throwing blood on you as you came in, knowing most of you are unclean? Except in Jesus. In Jesus, you are completely clean. That's why we don't have to throw blood on you as you come in because you are cleansed in Christ. Christ is the Passover lamb who has cleansed you once for all. That's why we don't have to do these kind of rituals. Praise God, you don't have to do all this stuff to come to worship. This is one of the reasons that we can come weekly instead of having to prepare a year in advance. We get to worship the Lord more often because of what Christ has done for us. We are cleansed by him. And then it goes on to say, for they were many in the assembly who had not consecrated themselves. Therefore, the Levites had to slaughter the Passover lamb for everyone who was not clean to consecrate it to the Lord. Notice that repetition. So the point is that the Lord is the one who provides the means by which we are made clean. We don't need to impress him. For the majority of the people, many of them from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulon had not cleansed themselves, yet they ate the Passover otherwise than as Prescribed. Now, many of you may be thinking, well, that's only because this is before Luther and Calvin were born. And God was not yet as reformed as he would be. No. No, not at all. In fact, I've witnessed something like this. I did a a middle school youth retreat. uh, And we did communion on the middle school youth retreat. Now, this was before I was Presbyterian and knew better that you shouldn't let middle schoolers have Communion. Anyway, uh, we served communion and barely got the instructions out and they stormed the table like barbarians storming Rome. In fact, they stormed it so hard there was no juice or bread left for me or the other guy who probably needed it the most, Jonathan Rowe, a good friend of mine. And it was a mess. It was just stuff was spilled. But I will tell you, I will tell you, it was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen because on that youth retreat, I had watched those kids be moved by God's love for them. I'd watched them, uh, one of them in particular, he had cerebral palsy, Whew. and uh, he was sitting on the front row, and I was talking about the new heavens and the new earth, and he had the best response I've ever seen, like, he, this kid got it. He started to vibrate. And he said, oh, I can't wait to run to Jesus, and I'll be able to run in a way that will be beautiful to him, and I can't wait to tell him I love him. Oh, that we would recognize that same truth. That we would have that same perspective about the new heavens and new earth. And this is what worship is supposed to help us do on a regular basis, and we're to help each other do within the context of worship. And though, I, I'm sure, like I said, but don't, if you want to bring me up on charge a long time ago, I don't even know if you can find those kids to have them testify against me. Good luck with that. I wasn't Presbyterian. I was Baptist. And we did all kind of crazy stuff back then. And I'm not arguing we should always do that. But I doubt the Lord was displeased. And the, by the way, me and Jonathan both are ordained now in the Presbyterian church. So if you look at that in the eternal sense, we were kind of already ordained in Jesus. but whatever. Uh, <laughs> And again, I'm not advocating, but, but I just don't think the Lord was displeased with, with the fact that these students got who he was and were hungry uh, for what he had to offer them. What it says, all right, so they're unclean. They've eaten in a way that they wasn't prescribed. And it says, for Hezekiah had prayed for them saying, may the good Lord pardon Everyone who sets his heart to seek God, the Lord, the God of his fathers, even though not according to the sanctuary's rules of cleanness. Listen at the heart of... This is the king now. This is not a priest. This is a king. This is one of the political leaders. Now, Hezekiah has a mixed reign. It goes bad at the end, but he got it here. He prayed that the people, because of the hearts they were seeking the Lord, that that would be important. Now, Is it now that they will, can anything goes in temple worship from here forward? Is that what happens? No. So hear me. There's a real paradox here. They were so excited to finally get to celebrate the goodness of the Lord that they didn't follow the steps. But it didn't mean that the steps didn't matter. The steps are intended to humble and form the heart. The necessity to be clean before they came was to help to humble them. But the thing was, they knew they were clean in and through the Passover at this point. And they were so excited to celebrate that the Lord was willing to hear the prayer of the king and forgive. Again, that's not licensed to behave poorly. It's not licensed to do things out of order as the Lord prescribes. But it does help us to see you don't have to be perfect because you're never gonna be. We're never gonna get it all right. Right, because in scripture, there is no prescribed liturgy for the church. Nowhere. We're piecing things together. Right? You guys, that, that psalm that we read for the call to worship, did you hear that part about dancing? I don't like to dance, personally, uh, even under the best of circumstances. I can. It's just hard for me to take serious. I know how to swing dance. I know how to do some other dances that aren't appropriate. I, I know all kinds of stuff. But So the, the notion of dancing and worship, eh, it just ain't for me. Right? Like you're probably not, not going to catch me, as uh, Dr. Lowe says, jigging about. However, there is a place in some measure for the movement of the human body to the glory of God. That's key. It's got to be to the glory of God. I'm not sure a lot of the dances I know qualify that way. A lot of the dances maybe you know would qualify that way. But let's not, let's not forget there's a lot of things that are open to us uh, whether it's shouting. When's the last time anybody shouted in here? <laughs> you, perfect response. Complete silence. <laughs> Complete That's, yes, thank you. But again, I want to be careful because for a lot of us, you're not shouters. Like we're 80% introvert. If introverts start shouting, the place is on fire. We need to take that serious. But just because we're wired that way doesn't mean we should demand that the liturgy keep others who are wired that way from doing it. Now, are you allowed to raise your hands past your hips and or armpits? I've done it five times in my entire worship experience, and every single time it meant something very specific to me. I won't do it every week. You might not even see it in your lifetime. But I have done it, and not just when I was not Presbyterian. Wasn't just part of the remnants of my Baptistness. But there are some of you that would raise your hands if other people raise their hands. Well, should you only do what the Lord allows you to do if someone else does it? Is that how it should work? Nope. Should everybody do it at the same time every week to make sure you get to do it when you want to do it? Nope. Ain't how it works. And so it's more about the heart with which we come in and recognize and and see that the Lord wants our hearts, not our behavior, primarily. Our behavior should reflect our hearts, correct? But sometimes there's a gap between those two things. And it's not as clean as we would like it. And so here Hezekiah has prayed, and the result is, and the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. And the people of Israel who were present at Jerusalem great gladness. Anybody ever seen that in here? I've seen glimmers of it. But they were grateful to be together, to be with the Lord, and to be celebrating their redemption and, and eventual reunification. It says, and the Levites and the priests praised the Lord day by day, singing with all their might. Is that what happens in here sometimes? Sometimes. Sounds pretty good coming throughout. But again, they were singing not because they liked the songs. I can guarantee you if you guys were, they were probably singing the Psalms. There's a few Psalms that you would not enjoy, right? The original Bob Dylan S. protest song, May They Smash Their babies' Heads Against the Rocks. I don't know what the tune is, but it sounds frightful, right? It's one of the Psalms. Some of you don't like repetition. Have you read the Psalms? There are some psalms that are insanely repetition. In fact, you would take the psalmist to task for saying the same thing over and over and over again. In fact, there are two psalms that are almost exactly the same. You, if you were editor, would have cut it, but for God's purpose, it needs to be there. So they sing with all their might because the Lord is good. And it says, and 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 Hezekiah spoke encouragingly to all the Levites who showed good skill in the service of the Lord. So they ate the food of the festival for seven days, sacrificing peace offerings and giving thanks to the Lord, the God of their fathers. What's interesting is it doesn't end there. Notice what happens next. Because again, I'm going to challenge you. When's the last time you thought, man, I hope this service ain't fixing to end anytime soon. You may be thinking that right now, knowing we got communion and a congregational meeting coming. When was the last time you were like, no, 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 let's keep it going. Whatever the community center wants us to pay, let's stay there all day. Let's, let's stay there all week. Now, I'm not faulting you for not thinking that because we get the benefit of doing this every week. That's one of the great gifts instead of they were doing it once a year. So it makes sense. I'm not trying to make a one-to-one in terms of time. I would posit, where is our heart? Are we just here for radical efficiency? Are we here to meet with the Lord? Then the whole assembly agreed together to keep the feast for another seven days. So they kept it for another seven days with gladness. For Hezekiah, king of Judah, gave the assembly a thousand bulls and 7,000 sheep for offerings. And the princes gave the assembly a thousand bulls and 10,000 sheep. Do you have any idea of the cost of these things? It is exorbitant. These people also have to stay away from their home and their jobs for another week. So two weeks away in an agricultural context would have been insanely costly. But they were willing to pay the cost to be with their brothers and sisters who had been redeemed in the Passover and to be with the Lord. Judah and the priests and the Levites and the whole assembly that came out of Israel and the sojourners... Listen to this. And the sojourners who came out of the land of Israel and the sojourners who lived in Judah rejoiced. These are non-Jewish people, Gentiles more than likely, who also got invited to the party. They were like, look, everybody come. The letter you remember did not get sent to the sojourners. So what this means is they heard of the party and asked, hey, what's going on, and got invited. This would be close to what Jesus was talking about when he said, go out into the highways and the byways. They did that. So there was great joy in Jerusalem for since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. Then the priests and the Levites arose and blessed the people and their voice was heard and their prayer came to his holy habitation in heaven. Well, would that our worship would come before the holy habitation of God in heaven. But the good news is he is with us because of the spirit that dwells within us. And Christ who is, uh, uh, we are in union with Christ. So it ain't got to go nowhere. It occurs here. Even in a place with a parquet floor, such lovely curtains, an aesthetic. The aesthetic doesn't change the quality of the worship. Whether or not it, and the real question is, is it blessed Necessity for you. Listen to what William Nichols says in a book called Jacob's Ladder, The Meaning of Worship. Worship is the supreme and only indispensable activity of the Christian church. I have a hard time believing that. I like to do stuff. I love to serve. Right? Like I, I used to think of, call it dirt church. We can do church in the dirt instead of in some dingy building Bored out of our minds. Let's go serve somebody. Yes, I had that chip firmly planted on my shoulder. But that ain't what we're going to do for eternity. Worship is indispensable. And that's the beauty of, because we just, we look at it and go, how? So many people do it so many different ways. Praise God for diversity. Praise God that we have opportunities to see the different ways in which his image is born across the world. Even across the street sometimes. He goes on, it alone will endure like the love of God, which it expresses into heaven when all other activities of the church will have passed away. So my question for you is, is the Lord's Day Sabbath a blessed necessity? Or is it an optional luxury for you? You can take or leave it. It's just Jesus and you. Well, if you wrestle with that, I got good news for you. You can confess that arrogance and sin and Jesus can forgive you. You can mortify that idea in such a way that worship can become something blessed for you. And you know how I know? Because I am that man. I at one time saw all of this as an abject waste of time before I was, I was ordained. So Let me just be real clear there. Even sometimes when I was ordained, I wonder. It's not a bad question to ask and be reoriented to the Lord our God, is it not? Another way of framing it is the Lord's Day Sabbath worship a critical component to your relationship with God or a commodified opportunity that you can opt in or opt out of based on how you feel. Again, I may be preaching to the choir. I get it. But it's very important that we recognize that the Lord has given us this gift where he meets with us as people as promised week in and week out to remind us again of who and whose we are. And praise God. This is a blessed necessity. And what a gift on a day when we have heard that message that we get to come to the table of Christ. Because we come because Christ has come to us, right? We don't come because we invite God or we have determined where and when he will meet with us and serve us. No, we we come because of what he has done. And what he has done in Christ makes this a hospitable place for us. Right? Christ is the head of the banquets. He is the one who does the inviting. He is the one who makes it possible for us to taste and see that the Lord is good.